When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on Wealth Track is the jig up for mutual funds. ETF expert Matt Hogan says exchange traded funds have a big edge and record inflows reflect it. The state of ETFs is next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Rosalind P. Walter, and the Fairholme Foundation. Welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. The numbers are pretty staggering. Record amounts of cash poured into exchange-traded funds last year, and the flood is continuing. Net inflows into U.S. ETFs alone reached more than $284 billion in 2016. Almost as dramatic was the leakage from mutual funds. Net outflows reached $186 billion. Not surprisingly, with more than 90% of ETFs representing passive index strategies, 95% by assets, passive investing was the overwhelming gainer and active strategies lost big time. More than half a trillion dollars flowed into passive mutual funds and ETFs, while a net $340 billion fled actively managed ones. Exchange-traded funds are also making their presence known on stock exchanges. Depending upon the day, ETFs account for between 20 and 40% of total trading volume in the U.S. market. According to this week's guest, ETFs have become the investment vehicle of choice for many investors, and they are in the process of eclipsing mutual funds in popularity and assets. He is Matt Hogan, a noted thought leader in the ETF space. He is chief executive officer of Inside ETFs, the world's largest ETF education and events company. Prior to that, he was the CEO of ETF.com, a leading authority on ETFs. Hogan was one of the first employees of the company, which was launched in 2001, and is an industry pioneer. I asked Hogan to give us a quick assessment of the ETF industry following its record-breaking year. It's never been better. As you said, record inflows last year, uh, well, almost near $300 billion in assets. Record inflows in Q1 of this year, about $130, $140 billion. That's huge. Particularly if you look at that compared to the traditional fund industry, there was almost a trillion dollar shift between into ETFs and out of actively managed funds last year. The, the ETF market is huge. It's vibrant. The biggest players are growing really fast. There's some interesting innovation. There's some less interesting innovation. But all in all, it's a healthier industry than it's ever been. So why are they so popular? And you said they are better for investors. Better for investors than mutual funds? Better for investors than mutual funds. All right. Why? What, what's better about them? Sure. They are inherently cheaper. They are inherently more tax efficient. 
They're inherently more tax fair, which I think is important. Um, and they give you exposure to what you actually want. Most investors don't want exposure to this stock or that stock. They want exposure to broad market categories. ETFs allow you to do that in a way that you haven't been able to do in the past. Tax fair. What yeah. does that mean? It's a big deal. So you know how many mutual funds pay out capital gains distributions at the end of the year. And the reason that happens is if you and I own the same mutual fund and you sell your shares and go on vacation, the mutual fund has to sell a bunch of stocks to raise cash to redeem your, your shares, send that cash to you. At the end of the year, if in selling those stocks, it, it sold stocks that it appreciated, it pays out capital gains to the rest of the people like me. Why am I paying taxes because you sold? Um, it doesn't make any sense. In ETFs, that's not the way it works. When you sell an ETF, you just sell it to another investor. And when shares are redeemed, they are redeemed out in kind. So ETFs almost never pay capital gains. And more importantly, your action has no impact on me. The mutual in mutual fund is because we're all in it together. And that means I pay my share of your costs. ETFs make each person responsible for their own activities. So it's more tax fair, it's more cost fair, in addition to being just cheaper and more tax efficient. We haven't had a market correction since the market lows in, in 09. Mm -hmm. So aren't they inherently kind of risky if you're, if you're basically buying an index? So, you know, when, when markets pull back, there's this common perception that that's a great time for active managers. History would suggest that's not necessarily true. Active managers have a little advantage because they tend to keep cash on their balance right. sheet, which lowers their beta to the market. But net-net, over any sustainable period, index funds have outperformed active managers. The real reason for that, though, is not that active managers are bad. It's cost. And actually, the bigger trend than active to passive is high cost to low cost. And there are a lot of factors driving that. And that's actually the most important thing. I'm fine with an investor buying a low-cost active product. I don't do it myself, but you can find great low-cost active products out there. But the days of high-cost products are over. That's a trend that's not going away. Should investors be worried at you know, year nine of a bull market about their broad-based exposure? Not really. Not no? if they're super diversified. Oh, okay. Where investors got into trouble in 2000 and then 2008 was being concentrated in single sectors, right? Was being in tech a problem in 2000? Yes. Was being heavy in financials? Broad-based exposure, will the market pull back? Maybe. But will active managers do better? History suggests no. Individual investors who in, invested in index funds mm -hmm. were also heavily exposed to tech. Yep. I mean, they didn't have as many index funds then, but were heavily exposed to tech in 2000. And they were also heavily exposed to financials because they're, you know, market cap weighted. So, you know, they're, they're as exposed to the, to the most expensive sectors as the active managers yes. are, right? Isn't that a flaw in this model as well? I love that because, yes, it's a theoretical flaw in the model. Right. Absolutely, 100% agree. It makes 100% sense. You're most invested in the most overvalued sectors. And yet, 8 out of 10 active managers will underperform over, over 10 years. And yet, there's no data to suggest you can find the ones that will outperform. So it is a, you are philosophically correct but practically, it's really hard to find that active manager that's going to beat the market. It's not like Wobegon, right? They all think they're better than average. <laughs> but in practice, that's not true. What kinds of ETFs are, are the most popular mm -hmm. now? So right now, the most popular are the big, broad-based index funds, buying big, broad-based exposure to every U.S. stock, every international stock, 
every emerging market stock and just getting complete market exposure at extremely low fees. Those and, and you can do that with ETFs. So, for instance, the, the, you know, the Vanguard um, World Stock Fund yeah. or, or the, it, you know, the U.S. market, Absolutely. For instance, right? Yeah, so I track what I call the world's lowest cost ETF portfolio, mm-hmm. and it has six ETFs, the lowest cost in U.S. stocks, international stocks, emerging markets, bonds, commodities, and REITs. The blended expense of that is 0.08% a year, right? which is less than a tenth of the average expense of an actively managed mutual fund. And for that, you get exposure to over 5,000 stocks in 40 different countries, 17 commodities. It's the greatest deal in the history of finance. And it's the kind of fund, it's kind of exposure a, a medium-sized institution would have paid 25 or 30 basis points for even 10 years ago. I, I really think it's a remarkable trend, right? ETF prices have come down 80% over the last 20 years, while the products have gotten better. It's, it's, it's a great gift. And where can one find that portfolio? Whose portfolio is it? If you Google world's lowest cost ETF portfolio, you can, you'll get the link. It's, it's hosted on ETF.com. Uh-huh. Um, but there are other great portfolios as well, like the you know, Wealthfront or Betterman or one of the robo-advisors. The robo-advisors. They mm-hmm. provide great core portfolios. People may want to dabble around the edges, but those should be the core portfolios for you know, the majority of people. Where the money goes is where Wall Street innovation follows, Mm -hmm. for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. What kinds of product diversification are we seeing in ETFs now? So I think that, you know, the biggest thing that everyone's talking about is smart beta, right? Smart beta are index funds that use factors in the market to attempt to beat the market, right? So they'll buy, say, low volatility stocks because those Mm -hmm. tend to outperform They'll buy value stocks because those tend, or quality or some mix thereof. Or did tend to outperform. Exactly right. And they're expensive right. now. And they're expensive those, now. Right. A lot of those are expensive now. And every ETF issuer is rushing into the space. And every active manager, it seems, is launching an ETF into that space. Those can be great products. I have deep concerns about them and how they're used. But some of them are great products. For the right investors, they'd be awesome. And why do you have deep concerns about how they're being used, some of these smart beta ETFs? Yeah, so, so the, they're based on solid academic research and behavioral traits in investors that over five, seven, ten years really will, I think, give you outperformance in the market. But to get to that outperformance, you may have to hold for two, three, or four years of underperformance. And I don't know about you, Consuelo, but I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't look at a fund that I thought was going to beat the market, see it trailing by 10%, and continue to invest. I'm not that strong, right? Some people are. But with the average holding period of an ETF about two and a half years for retail investors, I'm worried that they will buy high and sell low on these smart beta strategies. For disciplined investors, fantastic products. If you're not really disciplined and really tough, you're just going to end up on the wrong side of the stick. How do you overcome that in yourself, Matt? Do you just buy the index ETFs? I do. Actually, all my money's with the robo-advisor, actually, uh-huh. because the less I think about it, the better off I am. Um, and, and, you know, again, if I trusted myself, I would do that. But I bought one of the first smart beta ETFs. The ticker was PWC. It was a power mm-hmm. shares ETF. It beat the market for years. 
and I bought it just after it had beaten the market for like three or four years, and I sold it right at the bottom of its performance trough. And because I got it underperformed for of course, a couple of years? Right. Of course, because I'm a wimp and not a very good investor in that sense. Um, so I know well enough to leave it alone, broad-based index exposure, extraordinarily low cost, and history shows that pays off over time. And in a previous interview, you had told me that there are, like everything else, there are good ETFs and there are not-so-good ETFs and there are bad ETFs. So what makes a good ETF versus a bad ETF? So a great ETF is one that is low cost, that tracks its index well, that trades well so you can get in and out uh, efficiently, um, and that you know, generally provides broad-based exposure to the market. A bad ETF are these sort of quirky, fatty ETFs, or ETFs that say they're giving you one thing and, in fact, are giving you something else. What intrigued me was, I think that you, you said that 30% of the volume on ex- stock exchanges now mm-hmm. are from ETFs. Yeah, absolutely. On any given day, between 20 and 40% of all the trading. This is exactly the criticism mm-hmm. that Jack Bogle of former founder of Vanguard uh, and also who created uh, index mutual funds yep. says about ETFs that they're just going to encourage people to trade them. They're going to discourage long-term investing. How do you respond to that criticism? I love Jack Bogle, but here I think he's wrong, right? It doesn't really matter. You can trade an ETF intraday. People get excited about that. That's not what matters. What matters is they're inherently lower cost and more tax efficient. And also importantly, the fact that all these yahoos out there are trading these ETFs back and forth doesn't impact me as an mm-hmm. investor. Mm-hmm. I can buy that ETF, benefit from its low cost, all that stuff I can ignore. So I, don't, I just don't think he's right, right? You don't have to be one of those people who buy and sell. Um, you can be the long-term holder that makes use of the more efficient technology. One of the things that, that we're seeing is that we're seeing some actively managed ETFs mm-hmm. Uh, come to market. Mm-hmm. And certainly, again, it's very a couple of very popular money managers, one being Jeffrey Gunlock of, mm-hmm. uh, of DoubleLine, and, and he is a very hot bond fund manager. Yep. And he's come out with a, a very popular ETF, right? Yeah. And we've seen a WealthTrack guest, Chris Davis, mm-hmm. of the Davis Funds, a value manager, long-term investor. He's come out with, a, with three ETFs. What's going on with the the actively managed phase of the ETF business? Yeah, so I think both of those are great products, Mm -hmm. and for different reasons. Um, The thing about actively managed ETFs is they have to be fully transparent. At the end of the day, you have to tell your investors what you're investing in on their behalf. So what Gunlock has said and what Chris Davis has said is fine. We're not afraid to show what we own, right? Traditional mutual funds only show things quarterly with a 60-day lag, yes, which is uh, an, uh, an artifact of a fund structure that was developed in the 40s when right. we didn't have the internet. As an investor, you deserve to know. So what those guys are doing is saying, we'll show you exactly what we own. Importantly, both of those are low-cost products. Um, they're both run by great managers. And in Jeff Gunlock's case, as much as I love indexes, indexes are kind of a crazy idea in the fixed-income space. Maybe not the best investing idea. So I'm a big fan of both of those products. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you had told me, Matt, at at one point was that smart beta approach in fixed income was Mm -hmm. actually better than it was in in equity, in the equity space. Why is that? Well, let's start with how crazy the idea of fixed income indexing is. The way fixed income indexing is, is you put the most weight in the most indebted countries 
or companies. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Those are the ones least likely to pay you back, right? You wouldn't loan your money to your friend who owes a million dollars. You'd loan it to your friend who left his wallet and needed $10 to get gas, because he'll definitely pay you back. Mm -hmm. So the fundamental premise of investing in a fixed income index is silly. All that said, most fixed income index investments outperform active managers. So where does smart beta come in? Well, there are a number of different factors you can look at from a, a factor perspective that might give you better returns in the fixed income space. So if the two big risks are interest rate risk and credit risk, mm -hmm. maybe you don't want to give what, take whatever the market is giving you. Maybe you want to emphasize credit risk and de-emphasize interest rate risk in a market where the interest rates are going up. That's a smart beta strategy that's playing with factors in that space. Or maybe you want to look at the fundamental factors of likelihood to repay debt. Right? That's not actually something that most funds look at. But you could build a smart beta fixed income product that did just that. The beauty of smart beta versus active in the fixed income space is you're only talking about a potential return of 4, 5, 6%. So if you can drive the cost down, you have much more likelihood of a, of a good outcome. So I love smart beta in the fixed income space. And, and are we seeing a lot more smart beta in the fixed income space in ETFs? Yeah, we're starting to. We're starting mm -hmm. to see a few products that play with that interest rate versus credit rate risk or products that score bonds for likelihood to repay and reconstitute portfolios. I think that's an area you'll see um, increasing innovation in the years to come. And I think that'll be successful. And I think active will be successful in the fixed income ETF space. You do? I do. Yeah, I think Jeff Gonlock will be a huge manager mm -hmm. in the fixed income ETF space, right? Because it's the same strategy, just cheaper, more tax efficient. Right. Why wouldn't you love it? Right. Uh, more successful than active in the equity space? Uh, more successful in, I think, fixed income will be the first space that active has a significant impact in ETFs, where it's 10 20%, 25% of assets. That'll happen in fixed income before it happens in equity. Do you see more active managers going the ETF route as well? They have to, right? Because you see the writing on the wall. As I yes. said last year, almost a trillion dollar difference between into ETFs and out of active funds. That's a big number with a lot of commas and zeros. I think every active manager board is looking at this and saying, we have to figure it out. Some are figuring it out with smart beta strategies, and some are just saying, well, let's just be what we are, which is an active manager, and just be transparent. And I applaud both Chris Davis and Jeff Gunlock for doing that. You have uh, said that the, you know, the, the trend towards passive, that the meaning of passive is changing mm -hmm. and is subject to a lot of different interpretations. What does passive mean when we see when we see that something is a passive fund, well, it really isn't necessarily, right? I don't think it means anything anymore. Okay. Passive honestly. doesn't mean anything. It anymore. doesn't really mean anything. So traditional index funds, what we call plain vanilla index funds, right. like the S&P 500, you know what you're getting, large cap U.S. exposure. But now there are all these smart beta strategies that use multiple factors to trade in and out. Um, just the other day, we saw BlackRock come out and say it's going to fire a bunch of its human managers and replace them with quant-driven algorithms. Right. Is that any different than an index? Like, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. It's just with an active label instead of a passive label. So I think you, know, you still have this perception, maybe active is where there's some subjective override by a human. That's what Chris Davis is doing. It's not like he doesn't have fundamental screens mm -hmm. to pick out mm -hmm. which stocks to look at. He's just adding an, uh, a human subjective element on top. But really, it's become a spectrum and not a black and white thing. 
Um, indexes can be anything. What are concerns you about some of the developments in the ETF industry? Obviously, this is not all positive, and mm-hmm. it's not going to turn out to be all positive right. for individual investors either. Yep. What's of concern? So I think two things, really. As I said earlier, products that say one thing on the tin but are something else underneath, particularly if they're complex products in the leverage space or in the commodity space or in the volatility space, I think investors have to know what they own there. And then the biggest one is the behavior piece, products that promise performance um, and people chasing them. Because remember, we spent a lot of time arguing over active funds being overpriced at 1% versus 0.1% for an index product. But the average investor leaves 300 basis points, 3% annual returns on the table through poor timing. Solving that problem is even bigger. I don't, you could buy the most expensive active product in the world if you're a good investor, a disciplined investor. So what I'm concerned about, these active or these smart beta products mm-hmm. that promise performance will encourage performance chasing. And so the realized investor experience will be worse than the products themselves. And that's probably the biggest concern I have right now. There's a big debate in robo-advisor space. Is it better to have a human you can call on the phone? Yes. Or is it better to have a computer? And uh, I have a good friend who has a human advisor. And during the last, uh, it was a a crisis about a year and a half ago, maybe Mm -hmm. the taper tantrum, Mm -hmm. and the market went down a bunch. He called his advisor on the phone. He left a message, and he heard back a day later. Right? An advisor has 200 clients. It may take them a day or two to get back to you. Right. In the meantime... I went into my, my, my robo-advisor account. There was a message about the history of pullbacks and how fast things return. My fund had sold its, its losers and tax rebalanced into alternative products, so realizing capital losses for me. It was clearly monitoring the situation, and it was in real time. I almost think that's a better experience. Now, the best experience would be a blend of those, Right. But I think some of, the, some of the behavioral nudges you can do through electronic communication could really be transformative in closing that behavior gap. Couple more questions. You told me over the phone that the jig is up for the mutual fund industry. And it- totally, it's over. Like, I mean, come on. The mutual fund was created in 1920 whatever. The, yes. the Fund Act says 1940 in the name. That's a really good run. That's almost 80 years. How many technologies developed in the 1940s are we still using? It's like the potato peeler, and that's about it. So it had a great run, right? But ETFs are a new technology. Mm -hmm. It's simply more tax efficient, more tax fair, lower cost. I keep coming back to that. It is just a new, better version of a mutual fund. And that's why you've seen all the flows, right? I mean, it's, it's trillions of dollars in the past few years have made the swing. And that trend is accelerating. As I said, the first quarter of 2017 was by far and away the fastest growth ever. So I think ETF assets will surpass mutual fund assets by 2023, is what I've said before. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be coming true a little bit earlier even than I expected. So yes, I think the, the gig is up. I think it's over. Final question. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what should we all own some of? I think all investors should own VWO. It's the Vanguard Emerging Markets ETF. It's extremely low cost, extremely broadly diversified in emerging markets. The vast majority of American investors are way underweight emerging markets. Those emerging markets have been beaten down, and they're way undervalued versus historical norms. Chances are you're underweight that in your portfolio, and chances are that will hurt you in the next three to five years, and you can buy this fund and correct it and have a more balanced institutional quality portfolio. Another question. This, is, this really is the last one. 
I think that you had told me that just like we're going to have driverless cars in the future, mm-hmm. that driverless portfolios are in our future as well. Just explain that. 100%. The idea that a person can drive a car is going to seem insane 10 years from now because people wake up on the wrong side of the bed, had a fight with their spouse, they're distracted. It's a terrible idea. And we all know that's going to happen. That's true in portfolio management too. The idea that we trusted an individual to evaluate and pick stocks and make decisions um, is going to seem archaic and insane, if not in 20, in 10 years, certainly in 20 and probably before that. And that was validated by BlackRock's decision, right? They essentially fired a bunch of portfolio managers and replaced them with algorithms. It's, it's, it's a numbers-driven game, right? And we've seen this happen in baseball. We've seen it happen in lots of areas. When it's a numbers-driven game, algorithms are going to be better at it. So yes, it will seem insane to us in 10 to 20 years that we had humans picking this stock over that stock. It's going to be algos and artificial intelligence making those decisions. Matt Oakland, thank you so much for giving us a vision for, a, for our future, at any rate, our investing future. At any time. Happy to be here. Thanks. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is consider adding some ETFs to your portfolio. As Hogan said, the best ones are low-cost, tax-efficient, and transparent. They now represent virtually every asset class, stocks, bonds, commodities, and alternatives. As Hogan puts it, from micro to mega caps, from Argentina to Vietnam, from treasuries to junk bonds, and from aluminum to wheat. You name it, there is an ETF for it. And active managers are taking note. At year-end, there were 168 actively managed ETFs, Around 40 of those were added just last year. They tend to be less expensive, more tax-efficient, and are certainly more transparent than their mutual fund equivalents. Now, the one big negative is, since their shares are listed on stock exchanges, they are easy to trade. Therefore, they are tempting for aspiring market timers, a skill which the vast majority of investors lack. Next week, Social Security guru Mary Beth Franklin and Medicare expert Katie Votava bring us up to speed on Obama-era benefit changes taking effect now. What you need to know. And in our exclusive extra feature on our website, find out how Matt Hogan went from selling shoes at L.L. Bean in Maine to becoming a leading expert in ETFs. That is some career climb. We want to hear what's on your mind, so continue to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for watching. Have a joyous Easter weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholme Foundation.